Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 Dublin Festival of History, best-selling novelist Robert Harris talks about his book Munich with historian James Holland. It was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 29th of September 2017. everyone and thank you very much for coming and it is lovely to be here back in Dublin and um, and to be with Robert and talking about his fantastic book I don't know if any of you have actually read it yet but it is if you haven't go and get a copy afterwards get it signed it is absolutely edge of your seat stuff um, he's, and he's right can I just say <laughs> and I have to say you know I'm coming at it from the point of view of, of being a historian and a historian of this period of the Second World War and beforehand and afterwards. And, and uh, I've got to say, when I read a, a historical novel and it's about a period that I know about, I'm always a little bit tentative because I'm worried that the research isn't going to be quite up to my, uh, my kind of high standards. Uh, but this one absolutely hits the spot. And, and Robert, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Historians and academics can be a bit sniffy about the value of a historical novel, but I think you brought this to life in a way that no history book ever could possibly come close to achieving. Well, I appreciate it. It's very kind of you to say that. I uh, know that I'm, uh, I stand on the shoulders of uh, historians and scholars, so I'm always ca- scrupulously careful to list uh, all my sources some historical novelists don't, uh, but I'm, I always try to do that. Um, and by and large, one gets treated fairly well by uh, historians. Not all of them, but most of them. <laughs> well, the great thing about, about fiction, of course, is that you can fill in the gaps and you can imagine a scene. But as a historian reading something like this, you know, what, you're, what you, I think you achieve very, very successfully is that uh, ability of creating a kind of an atmosphere and a mood that, that really, really rings true. And I was, you know, much of your, uh, the research you've done obviously isn't just about the people, but also about the places. You know, one of the key features in the second half of the book is the Führerbau in, in Munich, and presumably you went there. Oh, yes, yes. I got a lot of access, everything that I needed, um, I was able to see, uh, beginning in Downing Street, where uh, about six o'clock, when when the main work of the day had gone down, I was able to wander around, actually, and saw where Neville Chamberlain's office study had been and the cabinet room where the private secretary sat and so on, and the prime minister's room in the House of Commons. I needed, I need this sense of sense of geography of power. I went to the Foreign Office and saw where Cadogan's office was. You know, in those days, for instance, uh, you used to cut across, the entrance to the, to the Foreign Office was directly opposite number 10 through the gates there. And so the Foreign Secretary could be sitting with the Prime Minister in a, a minute and a half. And then in Munich, uh, as you know, uh, the Führerbau, where the Munich conference took place, is the Faculty of Music of uh, Munich University, and it's absolutely untouched. I mean, it's an amazing paradox of the war that the city most associated with Nazism is the one that most escaped the bombing. Um, and the most creepy location of all I went to was Hitler's apartment in um, where Chamberlain got him to sign the piece of paper. And that was uh, really amazing because that is now a police headquarters building, all Hitler's personal property, after his death, passed to the state of Bavaria. And they don't really let anyone in, but somehow I managed, as an old journalist, to blag my way in. And uh, it was astonishing. So, so much of it is untouched. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And, um, you know, when you go into the Führerbau, it's that, that, that um, as soon as you go in, you just go, this is a Nazi building. There's that very kind of distinct architecture to it, isn't there? Yes, yes. It's full of both... The Führer and the Führer's apartment are full of ghosts, and it's you see him almost around the corner. And I've never lost that. Uh, I decided I want to be a writer when I was about eight, and I've never lost that childlike sense of imagining um, people in the place. And that really, for me, is always the thrill. To uh, what was it like? What was the weather like? Where did they all stand? What did they wear? What did they look like? You know, the things that a proper historian 
can't really waste his time over. And maybe there's too much speculation involved. That's where I can go. That's what I can bring to the party that, uh, that a proper scholar can't. And uh, you, you presumably saw a bit of Hitler's train as well, did you? No, I didn't see it. I worked on that uh, from photographs and, and memories, uh, reminiscences. It's my, almost my favourite book in, bit in the book is, is Hitler's uh, armoured train with which he, in, on which he left Berlin and steamed through the night to Munich at a steady... 55 kilometers an hour in a train made entirely of welded steel. As I was writing this, I thought, yeah, this is why I got into the novel writing business. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were talking earlier on about, about whether Robert was going to do a reading or not. And um, we were reliably informed that here in Dublin, people like to hear an author read. So if you would, then um, you're prepared to do one. And, and yeah, a bit on the train, I think. More than happy to do a reading. Uh, well, let me just tell you, I'll just... Let me just say something about the book. The book is um, about two friends who were at Oxford together uh, as students in, in, from 1930 to 1932. An Englishman, Hugh Leggett, who goes into the Foreign Office, comes top of the Foreign Office exams, and is eventually posted to Downing Street as, as a junior private secretary specialising in foreign affairs. And his friend, a Rhodes Scholar at Balliol, uh, who is a, a German, Paul Hartmann, who uh, goes into the German Foreign Ministry and is part of a kind of loosely evolving uh, resistance to Hitler uh, in the summer of 1938. And um, these two men fell out in 1932 and haven't seen one another since they were in Munich then. But destiny being what it is, one finds himself on Chamberlain's plane, bucketing around in the clouds, flying to Munich with, with the Prime Minister, and the other manages to blag his way onto Hitler's train and uh, goes through the night. And uh, he, he has with him a gun, uh, which he hides in a toilet. Um, and uh, his plan is to try and derail the Munich uh, summit, if he possibly can. And uh, one of the real problems with writing the novel, it wasn't putting Chamberlain in it, which uh, was a field I had to myself. No novelist, as far as I know, has ever had Neville Chamberlain as a character. So <laughs> this was virgin territory for me. But to, put a, to write a novel in which Adolf Hitler is a character, or it has to appear, I couldn't have him not, that was very tricky. And uh, I first tried to have um, my German character in the room with Hitler, and it was, felt so awkward that I had to call my editor and say, I don't think I can go on with this book. You can't possibly have someone coming into a room and Hitler is there. It's just hopeless. So in the end, I simply had him wait outside the door so that he didn't go in, and I was spared writing the scene. But eventually, uh, I had to um, bring in uh, Hitler. And so I'll, I'll read you this bit, if I may then. It's not too long, about five minutes. Uh, so uh, Hartman is on the train, and um, the train is steaming steadily south. It's the next morning now, and they're on the way to, the, uh, to what used to be Austria, <laughs> in order to uh, pick up Mussolini and the Italian delegation and head back to Munich for the start of the conference. And Hartmann uh, is in the dining car. Herr von Hartmann? Hartmann looked round. A large man, portly in a double-breasted suit, was looming over him. His domed head was bald, his thin dark hair combed back and plastered into place behind his ears with oil. He was sweating. Dr. Schmidt, Hartmann put down his napkin and stood. Forgive me for disturbing your meal, the foreign minister's chief interpreter bowed. We have received the overnight English language press summary and I wondered if I could trouble you, Hartmann. Of course. Hartmann followed Schmidt the length of the dining car, <coughs> past General Keitel's table and into the next carriage. Along the left-hand side were desks, typewriters, filing cabinets, on the right, the windows were blacked out. Wehrmacht signals officers, wearing headphones, faced one another across tables stacked with shortwave radio equipment. It wasn't so much a train as a mobile command post. It struck Hartmann that the original plan must have been for Hitler to travel in it to the Czech <coughs> frontier. 
Schmidt said, the Führer expects to see a press summary as soon as he gets up. Two pages will be sufficient. Concentrate on the headlines and the editorial view. Get one of the men to type it up for you. He deposited a sheaf of handwritten English transcripts on a desk and hurried away. Hartmann sat. It was a relief to have something to do. He shuffled through the dozens of quotations, pulling out the most interesting, sorting them according to the influence of the publication. He found a pencil and began to write. The London Times praises Chamberlain for his, quote, indomitable resolution, unquote. The New York Times, quote, the sense of relief felt around the world, unquote. The Manchester Guardian, quote, for the first time in weeks, we seem to head towards the light. The tone was the same, regardless of the political line of the paper. All described the dramatic scene in the House of Commons as Chamberlain read out the Fuhrer's invitation to Munich. Within minutes and even seconds, the message of hope was being hailed by well by millions whose lives a moment before seemed to hang upon the pull of a trigger. The British Prime Minister was the hero of the world. When he had finished his translations, he was directed by the unit commander to an army corporal. Hartman lit a cigarette, stood behind the corporal's shoulder and dictated. The machine was a special typewriter reserved for documents that went direct to the Führer, its typeface almost a centimeter high. His digest came out at exactly two pages. As the corporal wound it out of the typewriter, an SS adjutant appeared at the far end of the carriage. He looked harassed. Where's the foreign press summary? Hartman waved the pages. I have it here. Thank God. Follow me. As the adjutant opened the door, he pointed to Hartman's cigarette. No smoking beyond this point. They entered a vestibule. An SS sentry saluted. The adjutant opened the door onto a panelled conference room with a long polished table and seats for 20. He indicated that Hartman should go ahead of him. Is this your first time? Yes. Salute. Look him in the eye. Don't speak unless he speaks to you. They had reached the end of the carriage and passed through into the vestibule of the next, another sentry. The adjutant patted Hartman on the back. You'll be fine. He knocked lightly on the door and opened it. The foreign press summary, my Führer. Hartmann walked into the room and raised his arm. Heil Hitler. He was leaning over a table, his hands bunched into fists, looking down at a set of technical drawings. He turned to glance at Hartmann. He was wearing a pair of steel-rimmed spectacles. He <clears> took <throat> them off and looked past Hartmann to the adjutant. Tell Keitel to set up the maps in here. The familiar metallic voice. It was strange to hear it at a conversational level and not ranting over a loudspeaker. Yes, my Führer. He held out his hand for the press summary. And you are? Hartman, my Führer. He took the two sheets and started reading, rocking gently up and down on the balls of his feet. Hartman had an impression of great energy, barely suppressed. After a while, he said contemptuously, Chamberlain this, Chamberlain that, Chamberlain, Chamberlain. When he reached the bottom of the first page, he stopped and flexed his head as if he had a crick in his neck, then read aloud in a tone of intense sarcasm, Mr. Chamberlain's description of his last meeting with Herr Hitler is agreeable proof that his strong candor was rewarded with liking and respect. He turned the page back and forth. Who wrote this shit? That is an editorial in the Times of London, my Führer. He raised his eyebrows as if he expected nothing else and flicked over to the second page. Hartman looked briefly around the carriage. A saloon car, armchairs, a sofa, watercolors of pastoral scenes hanging on the light-colored, wood-paneled walls. It occurred to him that the two of them had now been entirely alone for more than a minute. He inspected the fragile head, bent, oblivious, reading. If he'd known, he would have brought his gun. He imagined feeling for it in his inside pocket, quickly withdrawing it, <clears throat> pointing the barrel, a moment of eye contact perhaps, before he squeezed the trigger, a final look, and then the explosion of blood and tissue. He would have been reviled until the end of time, and he realized he could never have done it. The insight into his own weakness appalled him. So you speak English? He was still reading. 
Yes, my Fuhrer. You've spent time in England. I was at Oxford for two years. He looked out, stared out of the window. <clears throat> His expression became dreamy. Oxford is the second oldest university in Europe, founded in the 12th century. I have often wondered what it would be like to see it. Heidelberg was founded a century later. Of course, Bologna is the oldest of them all. The door opened and the adjutant appeared. General Keitel, my Fuhrer. Keitel marched in and saluted. Behind him, an army officer carried rolled up charts. <coughs> you wish to have the maps in here, my Fuhrer? Yes, Keitel, good morning. Set them up on the table. I want to show them to the Duce. He threw the press summary onto the desk and watched as the maps were unrolled. One was of Czechoslovakia, the other of Germany. On both, the positions of military units were drawn in red. He folded his arms and stared down at them. 40 divisions to destroy the Czechs. We would have done it in a week. 10 divisions to hold the conquered territory. The remaining 30 transferred to the west to hold the frontier. He rocked up and down again on the balls of his feet. <coughs> it would have worked. It could still work. Liking and respect, that old arsehole. This train is heading in the wrong direction, Keitel. Yes, my Fuhrer. The adjutant touched Hartman on the arm and gestured to the door. As he left the compartment, he looked back for a moment, but all attention was now focused on the maps and he saw that his existence had already been forgotten. Well, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Hartman and the Fuhrer do meet again, and it's one of the most electric passages in the whole, the whole book. It involves a wristwatch, but I'll say no more. <laughs> but it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I've got to say, one of the things that really struck me about the book, Robert, is that all the, all the real characters really ring true. I think both Leggett and Hartman are entirely believable characters, but obviously fictional. But the Hitler, Chamberlain and all the various others that sort of suddenly creep in. I mean, every so often there's sort of a name that I'd sort of forgotten about, um, but suddenly recognised again, and it kind of sort of brought a smile to my, my face. Uh, but, but Hitler, I think, particularly, I think you've... you've what I was really... Your, your depiction of him really rang true to me, and I, I kind of wonder how you went about trying to put flesh on those rather odious bones. Well... Um... The great difficulty with the novel is um, that we know what happens and that uh, it's very hard to think oneself back to September 1938 and imagine the world as it was then without the benefit of hindsight. And Max Hastings, the historian, uh, said to me, you have to bear in mind that for a British statesman, Hitler appeared a good deal more sane than the Kaiser. Um, he hadn't yet gone, there was no war, you know, the, it, he still seemed possible to deal with him. Uh, and I really <coughs> therefore needed to write a Hitler that, that was not the Bruno Gantz in Downfall, uh, but who was still relatively young, only 49 years old, uh, and to somehow see him in private. And... Uh, I did have one stroke of luck, that there is, amazingly, an 11-minute tape of Hitler speaking normally, recorded without his knowledge um, in the summer of 1942, when he met Mannerheim, the Finnish leader in Finland. And, and he talks unguardedly in a conversational <clears throat> way and in this rasping, remorseless delivery. And one does get a sense of him, and it's a very expressive voice quite a sarcastic, biting humour as well in it, a, bo a voice full of command, and that was of great help to me. That and, uh, that and just going to the places where he was and, uh, you know, I mean, and little tricks of the trade, if I may say. You know, in that passage, I don't know how many people notice, the word Hitler never appears. Um, you know, just to put it on the page immediately makes it harder to to convey the scene. But if you just call him he throughout, um, it becomes easier. Yeah. And, and also Chamberlain, of course, who is, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you're all aware that Chamberlain has been 
at best criticised Reviled at worst for, for his appeasement in 1938 of what he did and, and, and the, those words of coming back from Munich, you know, peace for our times, you know, they, they came back to haunt him um, pretty quickly, you know, by, by March yeah. the following year. He was, you know, he had egg on his face. Um, but you give him a much more balanced and nuanced kind of view, which I think is absolutely fair and right, I have to say. I was I was cheering you oh, for well, that well, because thank you. I've always been a sort of bit of a closet fan of Chamberlain. Yes, well, me too, actually. And again, it's this hindsight thing. You just have to go back to 1938 <clears throat> um, and, and to put yourself in his position, really. Uh, he leads a country that has a, a, a very powerful navy, but a a pitifully small army and a, and a really completely non-functioning air force. I mean, this RAF had 26 squadrons. 20 of them were, were biplanes. Um, five were hurricanes, the guns of which didn't work above 15,000 feet. And one squadron of Spitfires, that is 20 planes. Uh, and uh, so he, he has problems with the sheer military might. And he says that one of his lessons was that you can't play poker with a gangster with no cards in your hand. Uh, and, of course, he also leads a country that only less than 20 years before had lost three-quarters of a million men uh, killed in the First World War. And uh, he said that he felt that the country would have a spiritual crisis or breakdown if, if the people did not see their leaders doing everything possible to avoid another war. In other words, you couldn't just crash into another war. You had to try and see if there was some way, at least, of averting it, which is what he set off to do. He's also... So I, I, I think one has to bear in mind the reality of his position. And secondly, he was not at all a weak and feeble character. He was as tough as old nails, tough as old boots, and as hard as nails. And he dominated the government, and he dominated his colleagues. Um, he was quite shy, quite a distant figure. But the people who worked for him admired him because he had complete integrity. I don't yeah. think he ever told a lie uh, in his life. Uh, and he had this burning sense of mission that if he could do anything, it would be for the wives and mothers and children, and that their men would not go off to die in another mincing machine. And that's what he set out to do. And whether, he, whether history proved him wrong, because he was dealing with Adolf Hitler, but uh, I don't think the effort was wrong. And I think that it, it is unarguable that it brought, bought the British the time to rearm. We had 10 times as many fighters in the summer of 1940 as we had in 1938. And it gave the British a moral strength that their prime minister had done everything conceivable to try and avoid this war. And Churchill was able to inherit, therefore, a united country. I don't think that, he said, you know, the, the country had the spirit or I, I merely provided the roar. And I think that's true. I think there was a general feeling among people that this now had to be seen through to the end, which there wouldn't have been, in my view, in 1938. Well, I completely agree. I mean, he was an incredibly tough character. And anyone who doubts that, you've only got to look at the uh, huge debates that went on in Parliament in 1935 when there were kind of huge arguments about how rearmament should happen. I mean, th there is this sort of perception, I think, in, in but popular perception that somehow you can't rearm and appease at the same time. But you, of course you can. Uh, and Britain was. And in 1935, it was Chamberlain who was saying, no, we need to continue... Um, upgrading our, our naval craft and expanding the navy and also building up our air force and he he had a showdown with with the army chiefs and, and completely won and this was when he was chancellor of the exchequer and he was absolutely right because the truth of the matter is is Britain, the British public wouldn't have stomached a large army because the only way you can have a large army is if you have conscription and no one would have put up a conscription in the mid-1930s. And, and what do you do with them once you've got them? I mean, we're, we're an island nation, we're a, a global seafaring empire and extra imperial trading empire and for that you need ships yes he also was quite shrewd as well I, I first came to this subject because i made a documentary for the bbc for bbc2 30 years ago uh, for the uh, well 29 years ago to be exact for the 50th anniversary of munich and the course of which i interviewed alec douglas hume who was the prime, who, former prime minister who was chamberlain's uh, parliamentary private secretary 
who flew with him to see Hitler, uh, and who I remember him very clearly. Churchill talked of the French army as the shield of Europe. And uh, Alec Douglas Hume, I remember him said, uh, Neville, Neville thought the French army was absolutely rotten, rotten to the core. And uh, I'm afraid that history proves that Chamberlain was right, that the, that the, that the French army was theoretically huge. Um, it, it, there wasn't any great willpower to fight. There was another reason why he thought that it would be a disaster to try and fight in 1938. Well, there was also that, that famous or infamous story about uh, General Vuillemin. Do you know that someone, he was the head of the French Air Force and he was invited by the Luftwaffe, uh, by Erhard oh, Milk, yes. who was number two in the Luftwaffe, to come over to see the Luftwaffe um, in 1938. So this was the summer of 1938. This was just before Munich. And actually, it's quite important, really, in, the, in, in what happens. Because um, Milk takes um, Wielemann to this airfield, and there's a long row of Messerschmitt 109 fighters all lined up, and they take off and perform stuff, and you know everyone's terribly impressed. And he goes, well, now we'll go to another, another airfield. And um, you know, Wielemann and, and Milk go off in their Mercedes staff car. And they go off to another airfield. In the intervening moments, you know, while they've been driving down the road to the next airfield, the 109s have all taken off and landed at the next airfield. <laughs> and Wielemann goes back to, back to Paris and says, we must never go to war with Germany. You know, our air force will be slaughtered. In actual fact, when the Germans invade on the 10th of May, 1940, they have about parity in terms of numbers. Yes. Uh, but they're cowed, you know, they, they think that the, the, the impression of military might is far greater than the reality. And that has an important bearing, I think, on the Munich negotiations. Yeah, the other thing about the, I mean, you know, you, you start asking me about putting Chamberlain in the novel. One of the things you find when you're a novelist is that you locate very quickly the characters who are driving the action and those who are merely responding. Uh, and the astonishing thing in the novel is you realize it's Chamberlain who's driving the action because uh, it, Hitler uh, wanted a war. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, he, he wasn't bluffing. Uh, he thought it was the perfect uh, excuse for him to begin his march east and the, and the Sudeten Germans were the perfect course for him to fight on. And whether the British and the French fought or not, uh, he was confident he'd quickly wipe out Czechoslovakia and that uh, the British and the French, if they did declare war, wouldn't have much that they could do to intervene, which was indeed the case. Uh, and so uh, Chamberlain is constantly trying to outmaneuver him and uh, it's Chamberlain who uh, uh, writes to Mussolini and says, uh, uh, will you intervene and uh, let us try and sort this out at the last minute? And uh, it's Hitler's constantly getting annoyed by the old arsehole, as he calls him, uh, who, what's it to do with him? Why is he uh, invading, you know, getting in the way? But the truth is that um, Hitler had made one, the only time he ever made this mistake, he'd outlined what his demands were. They weren't really his demands, they were his pretext. And Chamberlain sort of said, oh, well, I'll, I'll, let's sort this out. And this left Hitler um, stuck, really, because once Chamberlain was able to say, well, you, the Sudeten lands, we agree. If there's a majority of the German population, the population should return to Germany. He then was reduced to saying, well, I want them by the 1st of October, not the 10th of October. And um, even Goebbels, who was a great <coughs> fanatic for war, said, well, you can't fight a war on modalities. You can't go to war for the sake of, you know, a few days. And uh, when Hitler realized that the Germans' people themselves were not keen on the war, he very reluctantly had to back down. And so immediately, if you're writing a novel, the, the normally perceived power relationship between the two oddly shifts. Uh, and it's the feeble guy with the umbrella who's actually calling the shots. And, and I think that that is true. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And when Chamberlain gets to Munich, this is the other thing that's nice I find about writing a novel is that the weather was hot and it was sticky weather and there was a huge crowds in the Munich streets because it was the climax of the Oktoberfest, the beer and folk festival. There were thousands of people on the streets wearing holiday clothes, you know, of dirndls and uh, 
Lederhosen, and they formed outside Chamberlain's Hotel, 10 or 12 deep. An Oompa band was playing the Lambeth Walk, and uh, it was a kind of holiday atmosphere. And every time Chamberlain appeared, there were huge cheers, far greater than there were for <coughs> Hitler, which drove Hitler completely crazy. Uh, and uh, again, you know, it's Munich is just different to the to the the uh, story which has come down filtered through Winston Churchill. It has to be said through his rhetoric. He said, poor Neville will come badly out of history. I know because I will write the history. And uh, our country, my country, uh, is in the grip of a continuing Churchill 1940 obsession with our finest hour, which I'm not altogether sure is entirely healthy. But, you know, my God, it still goes on and on and on. And the, the thing that made it all possible in a way, 1938, has been completely written out of the script. And you've just received a very nice letter, haven't you? Yes, I did. I had a letter from uh, Chamberlain's granddaughter saying that uh, uh, she was born uh, two weeks, or just, at the, just a few days before Chamberlain's first visit to see Hitler. And she said she was always known in the family as the Munich baby. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those things that when you get it, you... It's very nice to see, but then I also felt uh, annoyed that I hadn't put this in the novel because Chamberlain in my novel, therefore, has become a grandfather for the first time, just as he's about to fly to see Hitler. And famously, when he went to Hitler's apartment to get him signed a piece of paper, he started going on to Hitler about babies in respirators and what an appalling thing it was and how war must be averted. And of course he was thinking of his own newly born granddaughter at this point. And uh, I, I've never seen that written in a history book and um, I think I shall have to put in a couple of extra sentences for the next edition because, you know, here is this, when you go to Hitler's apartment, it's very clear that he must have been having a sexual relationship with his niece because there was the, his bedroom and the, 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 the communal bathroom between them and then her, Gayle Raubel's bedroom, where she shot herself in 1931 and which he kept as a shrine. So when Chamberlain went to visit him in this apartment, this room was still a shrine. And the contrast between these two men, this, this pitiless, strange individual Hitler, and this, this, this very human uh, uh, Chamberlain uh, is very, very stark and, and striking. And it's one of the great dramatic moments of history, it seems to me, that people talked about Churchill and Hitler having a duel, but they never met. The duel was between Chamberlain and Hitler. That's what they met three times, three occasions face to face. And it really was a psychological a battle, a duel between them, I think. Yes, and they're both standing up for completely different um, sort of moral benchmark, aren't they? And a, a moral code for their, their respective lives. I mean, it's, you're right, it's absolutely so completely blindingly obvious, but, uh, well, but so starkly different. Yes, it's completely starkly different, and yet that curious similarity that you often find with men at the very top I mean, Church, uh, Chamberlain is leading an empire of over half a billion people, really. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's enormous power. And, and there is Hitler. And, and they are both secretive men. They, are, they both didn't confide in their close associates what was in their minds. Chamberlain never told the cabinet, the foreign secretary, the foreign office officials traveling with him that he intended to go and see Hitler and get him to sign a piece of paper. And Hitler never told anyone that he, was, he would sign a piece of paper and he never told, described anything that he was going to do. They didn't know what was in his head. Both were quite vain. Neither of them liked to be photographed in public wearing glasses, for instance, spectacles. And so when Chamberlain flew back from Munich and you see him reading out a famous piece of paper, he has to hold it like this because he can hardly make out what it says. But he won't put on a pair of spectacles in front of the newsreel cameras. I found, this, I found the odd parallels between them. One, a passionate apostle for peace, and the other, passionate for war. Uh, the contrast between it. And both messianic in their, in their 
in their conflation of their own personalities with their own nations. So that Chamberlain always talked about I and me. Uh, people criticized him for this, you know, my dreams have come crashing down in ruins and so on. He was always personalizing it. But they're an interesting study in contrast. But as you show, a man of enormous moral courage as well. Yes, and I think the other thing about him is that he was a bit shrewder than people thought as well. The, the Munich Agreement uh, was signed at about 2 o'clock in the morning on uh, Friday the 30th of September. And Chamberlain went back to his hotel and then was up again at 7 and uh, said and announced to everyone that he'd had a private word with Hitler and he was now going to go and visit him in his apartment man to man. And uh, the Foreign Office officials were horrified. Uh, and he wanted, he drew up this document he wanted Hitler to sign. And I hadn't realized that actually the basis of the language is the speech that Hitler had delivered earlier in the week, loudly protesting that he wanted peace. And, and Chamberlain took his words, literally his words, our two peoples never to go to war with one another again, importance of the Anglo-German naval agreement. And he, he got them typed up and said, I'm gonna go and get him to sign them. Immediately you know that, the piece of paper starts to feel a little bit different. It's not some sort of crazy wish list from a harmless old gentleman. It's actually Hitler's own words. He wants to plunk down on the table in front of him and get him to sign it. Uh, and Alec Douglas Hume and others said, uh, this is, you know, how, what, he, what if he doesn't stick to it? And he, Chamberlain said, uh, if he doesn't stick to it, then people will know what he's like and it may bring the Americans in. So I'm going to make a big thing of it when I get back to London. Those were his, literally his words. And he was a master of uh, using the newsreels. And he provided this indelible image of waving this piece of paper and reading it out. And it was designed to act as a sort of tripwire, as it were, so that if Hitler broke it, everyone would know it. You had to make a big thing of it. And, uh, of course, it destroyed Chamberlain's But reputation. actually it worked. But, but it worked. And, uh, uh, exactly. And Ribbentrop, when Hitler told Ribbentrop he'd just signed this piece of paper, Ribbentrop did a, the nearest you could get to a double take and, are you sure this is wise? Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, Hitler, you know, brushed him aside. But actually it was a mistake. It was, it was a mistake and it did have an effect on world opinion. Uh, in 1939 and 1940. Yes, and actually, you know, let's not also forget that the moment he does go into Czechoslovakia, then, you know, Chamberlain's line is incredibly hard and uncompromising, and, you know, the line has been crossed, hasn't it? Yeah, there's a wonderful story. I ca Alec Cadogan, who's a character in the novel, was uh, Sir Alexander Cadogan was the head of the Foreign Office uh, under Halifax, and uh, he felt that... Uh, he wrote in his diaries that Munich, we had to make the Munich Agreement, but I wish that Chamberlain didn't come back and go on about, you know, didn't, if only he could just sort of say, we have to do this because we aren't well armed enough. But of course, the whole point of appeasement was to, was, was to try and foster goodwill. So you couldn't come back and say, uh, it's peace, but also we're, we really actually think there's going to be war. You had to do a certain amount of uh, the, part, the, the whole thing was, to, to a degree, designed to suggest that uh, uh, you believed in peace. But Cadogan, uh, several years later, after Chamberlain had died, was on a, on a railway train. Do you know this in, in, no, in, in, in Russia? And he was with uh, um, Maisky, I think, the mm. Russian ambassador, and he was with Harriman, the Roosevelt's envoy. And they were both mocking Chamberlain. And Cadogan said, writes in his diary, I put down my napkin and I stood and I said, there is only one man out of the three leaders we represent who ever actually declared war on Adolf Hitler rather than the other way round. And with that, I left the carriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting also that throughout um, 1939 and 1940 and well into 1941, 
all the rhetoric coming from Hitler and the senior Nazis is that Britain is the most, you know, England is our most dangerous enemy. And it goes over and over again, and particularly in that long summer of 1939, when all those negotiations are going on. It's not France, it is, it is England. And of course, that's because England back in those times, Britain back in those times was, you know, had the world's largest empire, had this huge global network, which was extra imperial as well. And it, and it was the toughest enemy to crack for them. Exactly. Um, Which is one of the reasons also why Chamberlain is, you know, it, it is a duel with Chamberlain yeah. rather than with, with Deladier. Yes. And, uh, you know, the British, even by the end of 1938, were spending nearly 30% of, of, of um, government revenue on armaments. By 1939, this had risen to 50% in peacetime. Imagine spending 50% of total government revenue on rearming. Uh, but the constant fear was that the, it would re lead to a run on sterling and that the financial system would collapse. And indeed, in August 1939, there was a very grave run on sterling. And this was another thing that Chamberlain doesn't really get much credit for, that he managed to engineer this massive programme of rearmament without trashing the economy and the currency. Because in the end, Britain could only fight, only build the empire by the ability of the City of London to raise credit, to, to, to sort of pay for wars on the never-never, as it were, yeah. which is what we did in the Second World War and which left us bankrupt. But we could do that. Because we had such huge pressing power. Yes, and because we had a strong, strong credit rating, if you will. Would that we had it now, quite frankly. <laughs> Um, I know this is a history festival, but I just wanted, yeah. just before we turn it over to um, to the audience for questions, I, I would just like to sort of ask one thing about about the, the novelist's craft, and that is that, that it, it is such a fine line, isn't it, with research? You you you, you know you know all, you've you've done your research, you know all this stuff. You want to there must be always such a temptation to kind of put in every fact and figure and detail, which of course then doesn't ring true because. Had you been writing yes. a contemporary novel, then it wouldn't, it, you, you wouldn't have all that stuff. So how do you kind of balance that weight of the research you've done, create that sense of atmosphere, but not in too heavy-handed a way? Well, I, I think got, you get that balance. No, you're on. absolutely right. That is actually the whole trick. I'm reluctant to... Uh... No, don't reveal <laughs> it, but I'm just... But you're completely correct. Uh, Tom Stoppard, who adapted uh, Enigma into a... A film, my second novel. He had a sign above his desk from his historical research, which reads, um, "Just because it's true doesn't mean it's interesting." Uh, <laughs> this is a profound truth for the historical novelist, uh, and you simply have. I felt this particularly with the Roman novels. If I was writing, you know, uh, Leggett walks down Oxford Street and. Uh, uh, heading towards uh, Tottenham Court Road. Because everyone normally puts yeah. in a lion's yeah. I corner shop, I don't say, they? I wouldn't say, you know, he passes uh, Selfridges on the left, which was founded by Gordon Selfridge in 1910. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't naturally do that. So you actually have to just sort of pretend uh, that it's a contemporary novel and not put in things just for the sake of putting them in mm. uh, to show that you've done the research. And if you can do that, and it means a certain degree of discipline and leaving out a lot of, to you, quite interesting detail, then the story feels much more real. It moves more quickly, I hope. And the reader has a sort of sense, can detect that there are maybe five or 10 facts could be going in here that actually aren't going in. Uh, and it's, it's, it means you have to do a lot of research. But for me, I've never hired a researcher in my life. And the, the, the research is, is, as it were, the lived life. It's, it's plowing through the detail, the boring bits, coming across the nuggets. That, that's the experience that, that is sort of, you know, knowing the world, as it were, knowing all the little bits that aren't of any relevance. Uh, of course, I don't know it all, but you know. It, it's, but you start to sort of formulate a picture in your mind's eye that that, that exactly, where you feel comfortable exactly. in what you're describing. You know, the weather, for instance. I'm a great believer in putting weather in novels. My wife thinks I'm completely completely obsessed with the weather, uh, but you know, it was this this 
the hot temperature and then the splitting rain, you know, that you get at the end of those muggy periods at Heston Aerodrome. And the aerodromes, you know, they were grass fields. They weren't runways. Mm. They, these planes went bouncing over the grass. Or the Lockheed Electra that uh, Chamberlain clambered aboard, they weren't like modern airliners, you know, straight like this. You had, they were like this, slanted up. So you had to sort of haul yourself to the front and sit sit like this, they were unpressurized. So they'd fly at about seven and a half or 8,000 feet, a, a bouncy and unpleasant journey. Uh, the hamper of food provided by the Savoy Hotel at the back, you know, all these little details that a normal historian, quite rightly, has got far too much else to worry about to get into. These are all the manner from heaven for the, for the novelist. Well, this is why I go back to my original point that I think sometimes a, a fiction can actually give a more vivid portrayal of an age and po possibly more accurate as well than actually a, a straight non piece of non-fiction, a straight piece of history. And I think you do it incredibly well. Anyway, on that note, let me uh, hand over to the audience and questions. Yes, gentlemen here in the second row with the glasses. I'm just interested in your um, your comment about you know Hitler feeling that he had sort of lost, if you like, the duel with Chamberlain, right? And it's actually probably a question for both of you is to it's interesting to speculate as to whether having had that experience, it meant the likelihood that they would ever have reached a point where they would compromise less. So you know that that actually that to enter into a negotiation is to risk to lose. And that somehow that that experience would have left them that no matter what the circumstances were, they would never ever have actually gotten themselves in a point where they would be suing for some sort of settlement, that they had no way of getting to that emotionally, if you like. Yes, I think that um, uh, the, the greatest, the great in my view, and I don't know whether James would agree with this, but the best historian of this period, who wrote two huge volumes called the Foreign Policy, German Foreign Policy, 1933 to 39, Michael Gerhard L. Weinberg, still alive in his 90s, was a German-Jewish family, fled Germany in 1938, in fact. He is, his books, I think, are unassailable. And he said that, that, that in 1938, Hitler, flattered by the arrival of the British Prime Minister, made this naive mistake of saying, of, of kind of giving his pretext and, and, and was taken aback when Chamberlain said, well, let me see what I can do. <clears throat> and, he, and Weinberg makes the point that Hitler learned from that mistake. And when it came the following year to Poland, you will find that he never really outlines in any detail a set of demands that could be sorted out in negotiation. It's all rhetoric and screaming and ranting. And... Uh, uh, that was, I think, because Chamberlain curiously had established a psychological edge over him. And although Hitler afterwards referred to Chamberlain and Deladier as worms and so on, the fact that he did that, I think too many historians take that at face value. It may mean, you know, people who say that about someone else, it's because they've got under their skin, isn't it? He's a worm. Uh, but it, I've, I've often thought it's rather naive and stupid to take that as being his necessarily what he, what he felt. And, and one of the epigraphs to the book is from uh, Hitler in uh, February 1945, so two months before he commits suicide. He, he said, uh, we should have gone to war in 1938. September 1938 would have been the best time. Uh, and that's a pretty irreproachable source, it seems to me. I mean, the, for, for, the, for the student of this period, the paper trail is absolutely immense. I mean, not only do you have official documents and you can still get in dusty secondhand bookshops, you can still find original, huge, there's a huge booklet sort of this, this high, sort of a full scap size bound with sort of, you know, documents on German foreign policy and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and there's volumes of them. And um, a lot of the key characters kept diaries or wrote letters a lot. Of, for, if you're a sort of big leader in, in the Second World War period, your, your way of letting off, your, your time with, where you would normally go on a sort of psychiatrist couch the way you get stuff off your chest is by writing a diary or writing to your sister and uh, sisters in Chamberlain's case and a lot of these people did keep diaries and and and, and what you see is is that what they're feeling on Tuesday doesn't necessarily reflect what they're feeling on Thursday and you you, you have to be very wary of, of taking isolated quotes from a diary and seeing them in isolation, you really really have to sort of see that bigger picture and see what mood they're in the following following week and so on. 
But there is a lot of detail on this period, and it goes right through to all the negotiations going on in, in 1939. And it is absolutely fascinating. It really is. Uh, there's a lady over there, and then we'll go over here. Um, thank you very much. Uh, your, your novels are great for making, getting the feel of how your characters you know, are in the situation, which is why I enjoy them. The, point, the question I wanted to ask you was, you mentioned about Chamberlain um, um, being very conscious of the effect of World War I and people being reluctant to go into a second one. I'm just wondering, is the reverse um, true about Hitler, that in a sense, the humiliation that the Germans were, were doled out after World War I in terms of the, the sanctions on them, that make it easier for him to tap into them being um, agreeable to going to war? Um, I think that the... Uh, I mean, Hitler liked war. I mean, Hitler uh, said that um, uh, a man's first experience of war was like his first experience with a woman. I mean, he said that to, uh, to his associates. He believed that a war was a vital part of uh, the human condition. And uh, he wanted war. Um, the only other leader I can think of who shared something of that view was Winston Churchill, who also believed that it was only happy when there was a war. He freely confessed that, and indeed found war quite arousing, was another thing that he confessed privately uh, to Desmond Morton in the First World War. Uh, and uh, he, so, but Chamberlain, of course, to, was, who didn't fight in the war, in the First World War, he was too old, uh, had an absolute horror of war. Um, and the thing, of, thing of, another thing that I found most interesting researching the novel was this, this cheering and applauding of uh, Chamberlain by the German people, who sort of used his visits as an opportunity to stage a kind of peace protest in the sixth year of the Nazi regime. And uh, one of the things that made me want to write this novel I first wanted to write it 30 years ago. Uh, the, I saw the English character, but I couldn't find the German character, and I didn't know what I would do with the German side of things. And then I came across this diary that was kept by Joachim Fest, the German historian, who ghost-wrote uh, Albert Speer's Inside the Third Reich in the end of the 60s. And he kept a little diary of Speer's comments and what he said, and eventually he published this slim diary, hardly anyone's read it, but it, uh, in one of the things, entries for 1969, he's, he's, Speer talks to us about the Munich Agreement. He says that after the Munich Agreement, Hitler was in a foul temper for weeks and took it out on his subordinates, which was a thing he never normally did. And eventually at a dinner party, it all came pouring out, a dinner party with a group of uh, close intimates. Uh, that uh, he'd been cheated of his war and um, the German people had been duped and by Chamberlain of all people uh, was what he said. And uh, so he, he, he wanted the war. That's the thing. If, if you, whereas a lot of people think that Hitler was bluffing in 1938 and amazingly the West, the weak Western leaders gave him what he wanted. So then he set out to bluff again in uh, Poland and then, but this time, they, you know, he miscalculated. I don't think it's like that at all, is the truth. He wanted the war and I suppose you're right. He did see it as 19, the war was just, you know, picking up again from 1918 after the stab in the back. Now we'll go back in, now we'll sort it all out. And I think it's also worth pointing out that the vast majority of people in the free world were, thought that what Chamberlain had done was amazing. And was, yeah. was abs I mean, you know, everyone, literally everyone in Britain was cheering from the rafters. And of course, in America, he, he received, a, after Munich, Chamberlain received a two word telegram from President Roosevelt Good man. There's someone over here. Yes. Yes, hello. Thank you for the interesting discussion. I, I, I just wonder whether or not based on what you've said and what, and what we know, whether or not um, uh, Chamberlain's foreign policy in relation to Hitler helps the Second World War happen or, or not. It would seem to me, and you, uh, there was a discussion there about the word bluff, and in my own view, Hitler called Chamberlain's bluff a couple of times, and 
each time he called it and moved on, he felt empowered to go on, and that, that effectively led to the Second World, to, to, to what happened. And that actually, if, if someone had stood up to him firmly early, with a, with a Churchill-type personality, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't have gone on the way it was. And I'm not entirely sure I agree with the, the comment that um, the, you know, the waving of the, the, the paper was greeted around the world with um, enthusiasm by everyone. I'm not entirely sure that was correct. Well, I think, um, I mean, yours, that is certainly the, con the general view. That is, that is the, uh, the Churchill view of the whole thing. I can only report, you know, the facts that, as I saw them, that I think that that is a lot of what-ifs. I don't think Hitler... Uh, it's possible, yes, that if the British and the French had attacked Germany in 1936 when they reoccupied the Rhineland, uh, uh, yes, he might well have fallen from power. But there was no way, simply no way, that Churchill or anyone else was going to rouse the British people to go to war in 1936 to stop Hitler moving into the Rhineland. I mean, it's a sort of, you know, it's, it would be nice to think that had happened. It would be nice to think all sorts of things might have happened. That in 1918, you know, and 1919, the Versailles Treaty hadn't been as it was. But the, but the truth of the matter is that Chamberlain had certain cards in his hand, and they were pretty poor cards. And I don't think he was ever able to bluff Hitler, because he, he, he didn't have any, anything to, to back it up, in my opinion. And one just has to accept that Hitler wanted war. He was building armaments immediately. He was set on war. Uh, and we were not ready for that. I mean, if, when, if, if the leader of a mighty industrial country like Germany, over which he has total sway, is set on war, then the war is not going to be Neville Chamberlain's fault, it's going to be Adolf Hitler's fault. Um, this idea that somehow it could have been, it, it was, if only he had done something differently, he could have avoided it. I don't think there was any avoiding the war. It's, that's my personal view. It's, it's, an, it's a historical argument that will go on forever, but if I have to sit and see one more uh, film about Dunkirk or one more movie with, Churchill played by some actor intoning, uh, you know, if the British Empire should last a thousand years, you know, give me, give me a break. Um, you know, we need to, I, I do think it's time that the thing, I do think there's another side to it, let's put it that way. Um, you, you, you've spent so much of your working life um, thinking about and animating historical figures, um, you know, Cicero, uh, Dreyfus, uh, Chamberlain. Um, when you look around the world, at the moment, what thoughts occur to you? <laughs> what connections do you make? Well, you. you know, the trouble is that Trump has rendered fiction impossible. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, there's nothing one can do. I mean, when I, I came to write these Roman novels because I wanted to write a big political book, and I just thought that I, I couldn't do write about any people more bizarre than George Bush and Tony Blair and so on. But I, obviously I had no idea what was coming down the pipe <laughs> because this really does make it almost impossible. And uh, I'm not sure how one writes political fiction now. Uh, uh, and I don't know, things are on the move and on the rise in a, in a way uh, that it's too close for one to be able to judge uh, what the causes are. And anything you try to write could, if I finish a novel at the beginning of July, by the time it comes out in September, anything might have happened. The world is moving so quickly and we do not know, I don't think, really exactly what lies behind these forces that have led to Brexit, have led to Trump, have led to the vote for the for right in Germany. I mean, clear, but clearly something is in the air now. I think we've got time for two more. We've got someone at the back, and then there's another question there about halfway down on the left-hand side. Um, first of all, just thank you very much. It was, I really enjoyed it, uh, Robert and James. Fantastic evening. So now for the difficult question. <laughs> uh, um, I'm a, I work in Clannacilty, um, which is Michael Collins' country, and um, I'm involved in a local history group um, a lot of the people that come 
are obviously interested in Michael Collins. And of course, all their history is built predominantly on um, the movie. I know it's not quite the genre you're involved with. Uh, fictitious history, let's say, are based in fact. Um, I'd like to just know your opinion on, on particularly movies, I suppose, but maybe some fictitious or fiction history as well. Is it a dangerous thing? I'm also a teacher and uh, I love to see my kids read. And in fact, many of them read uh, historical novels, which is, which is great, I encourage it. But sometimes I, I believe it blurs the line between what they perceive to be real and what is fiction. I'd just like to know your opinion on that, if you don't mind. Well, I think you raise, a, you know, that's a very fundamental point, and I, I do take what you say. Um, uh, the problem with a novel like Munich, quite frankly, is um, I, there's no way I can communicate to the reader what is true and what isn't. Uh, and I know a lot of people re have read my books, in particular the Dreyfus novel, and have practically been on Wikipedia half the time and reading it here to see what's true. Uh, I can only say, well, first of all, that Wikipedia is great because it does mean actually you can check, look up a character's name. Uh, it's good that you're encouraging people to do so. Yes. Uh, I, for my own part, all I can say without sounding too pious about it is I always try to be true to the spirit of the period. And, and my rule is never to put in something that literally could not have happened. I mean, everything that I write that's fictitious could have happened. Um, uh, you know, Hartman in the novel, you know, he, he plays a role in, in, the, in what happens in, in the book. Of course, there was no Hartman, there was no Leggett, they weren't there. But, what, but it's possible that something like that might have happened. Uh, that's the best that I can say. And um, I, I think that the value of historical fiction, especially for young, for kids, I mean, I grew up on Rosemary Sutcliffe, for instance, about you know, the, the Roman books of Rosemary Sutcliffe. Uh, they stimulate interest and, and make you want to find out the actual facts. And uh, that, I think, is, is the justification for historical fiction, that it makes you want to know more about the reality, in fact. Can I just add something here? And that is that, I, you know, I spend an awful lot of time cringing when I'm watching, you know, historical movies, particularly when it comes to the Second World War, Dunkirk, for example. And one of the things that was just such a joy about reading this book is, for me, it really, really rang true. I really felt that this was about as accurate a depiction of what happened in those extraordinary four days as you could hope to, to read about. And, and so, you know, I completely salute you for that. And... It is painful reading books and watching films when you just know they've got something massively wrong. Too many cars in Berlin in 1939, for example. You know, Germany was actually not very automotive at all. Everyone talks about the Nazi war machine. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's that kind of thing that just it just really great. But I think you've hit the nail on the head with this. I think oh, you've really well, got it right. I didn't write down that fast enough for the paperback, but I might perhaps take it down. From <laughs> the last question. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for a very interesting discussion this evening. Um, your novels have covered uh, a lot of different eras, and I'm just wondering, as a historical novelist, are you interested in particular eras in history, or are you driven more by the story? Um, well, I'm really interested in the present day, uh, is the paradox. And I think that one is drawn to write novels about the past because because there's some resonance, in, even if it's subconscious, in that era, in that story, in that character that speaks to us now. Um, and the Cicero novels I embarked upon, um, they, what have they turned out to be? What were they about? They were about a group of uh, irresponsible, by the context of the time, billionaires whipping up the populace in, a, in an irresponsible way to attack an elite for their own interests and in the process destroyed the democratic structure of the Roman Republic. Sound familiar to anybody? Uh, so that's why one wrote those novels, I think. The Dreyfus Affair, uh, the moment I came across the character of Colonel Picard, I thought, this is a man, a whistleblower, in a, in a sense, the first great whistleblower in history who, who discovers corruption within the French army and government. And all these decent colleagues are covering it up in the name of the good, greater good of the institution. 
and, and he stands against them. And that seems to me a modern story. You know, that is a timeless story. It goes on still all the time. And um, uh, Munich, which is a novel I've wanted to write for 20 or 30 years, why now? Well, a group, a small group, half a dozen, British Foreign Office officials bouncing around in a plane with no cards in their hand to play, negotiating on the continent. <laughs> Again, does it sound at all familiar? <laughs> so, so I think, I think, I think that's the reason, the reason one does it. It's not that I'm, you know, obsessed with Tudor armour and I want to write about that, or, you know, I don't, I don't want to do it as a historical reenactment. I think uh, historical novels are contemporary novels. Uh, Shakespeare wrote Julius Caesar because he couldn't write about the tyranny, the decaying tyranny of Elizabeth I. He, he did it in that way. And I think that that, and I don't think that's an illegitimate use of, of, of why any of us are drawn to a particular historical period. What, what is the, what is, and you treat it with respect. You remember, as Maitland said, that what is now in the past was once in the future. Uh, and you see the struggles of human beings with those, those grappling with those problems. And it's both a, a comfort and, I think, a lesson to us. That, and that's really why I write historical fiction. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, Robert, thank you very much indeed. And I really cannot recommend this highly enough. So please do rush out and get a copy and get it signed by Robert in a minute. Um, but otherwise, thank you all for coming. And um, hopefully see some of you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Fest.